بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على أشرف المرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه ومن تبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين This is the sixth session and it's very sensitive session and I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help me It's about disciplining the sexual desires of children and you might think there is a contradiction sexual desire, children I would like to put forward this session as something that could be useful at the later stage of the child's development. So what might be said here is not applicable to someone who is two years old. Or we are talking about someone who is developing and is about to reach the age of puberty. And remember what I said to you at the beginning, that the entire nature of the interaction between a Rasul Sallallahu and children and between you and as parents and children is a process of training and it's a protective measure. Instruct them to pray at seven and beat them not to create pains and take them to the emergency hospital at the age of 10. Why? Because it's training them to love the Salah and to get into the habit of praying. Lowering the gaze and covering themselves and seeking permission before they enter into their parents' bedroom might not necessarily incite a sexual desire, but it will certainly train him or her to be prepared to that stage. And parents have probably are a bit embarrassed to discuss uh, sexual matters with their children, but we might see, and I hope I will show you, that Rasulullah never felt embarrassed. Because this is reality, this is a fact of life, and they are going to encounter it with you or without you, and behind you. And if you are not guiding them, they will seek advice elsewhere. And you know what I'm talking about. So, sexual desires. I wanted to divide my approach to this topic into two parts. One part is the role of the household in disciplining sexual desires, and then the outcome of that disciplining on the child when he is outside the house. I am aware of the problems. I am aware of the real challenges here in the West. I am aware that you might invest labor and time and effort in disciplining the child inside the household. But because we live in a non-Muslim society, it's the outside of the household which is a problem. But I still believe that this process of disciplining will make them 60, 70, 80% better than if they came out from a household that has got unlimited access to the internet, that sees all programs on TV, and that looks and buys the latest fashionable magazines that have night dresses and put them on the table in the living room. I also want to tell you something else. Be aware that you living in the West, I'm not trying to underestimate the seriousness, but just let me give you another parallel. Being 
or raising up children in the West is not a necessarily a unique experience, although every experience is unique. But think for a moment, and I haven't spoken about this in details, think for a moment about the children that became Muslims in Mecca. Not Medina, not Anas ibn Malik. Think about those who became Muslims in Mecca. Think about Ali ibn Abi Talib. Think about Zayd ibn Haritha. Think about Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Think about Al-Arqam ibn Abi Al-Arqam. I've got actually a book which is called Shabab Quraysh. The, young, the youth of Quraysh. It's all about the young people that were born and brought up in Mecca. Not in Medina. Where there was no mosque. Where there was no Surah Al-Baqarah or Al-Ma'idah or Madani culture and legislation. But there was Islamic, Mecca culture of lowering the gaze, of protecting one's private parts. Because the teacher and the master in that little room that was owned by Al-Arqam and Abi Al-Arqam was sufficient to morally discipline those children and indeed those companions. I am in no way trying to tell you that the situation is the same here in the West. But of course, I might argue it's better than the situation of children in Mecca. Because now we have Islamic schools, we have Islamic organizations. We are able to hold such a function at Birkbeck College rather than in the central mosque. So I am saying that we are in a better situation. The challenges are there. And inshallah, by narrating some of the verses from the Quran and some of the ahadith, we might help reduce the impact of that challenge or guide you towards dealing with that challenge. Let's then discuss the first part. The household. And really, I would like to focus and emphasize at that stage on the role of the parents. And I don't want to give you now a talk on marriage and how to select your future wife and how to select your future husband if you have the luxury of selecting. I am saying this bond is holy. This bond is sacred. Because based on that bond, everything else based on the household, will be built. I hate talking about things related to me or things that I did. But in the four great imams and in the Bukhari, I was fascinated and crazy about the role of the household in bringing great people such as Abu Hanifa, Al-Shafi'i, Malik, and Ahmed Muhammad and Bukhari. Because the impression that people have is that Abu Hanifa was... Born Abu Hanifa, the great Abu Hanifa. No, Abu Hanifa was a teenager. Abu Hanifa interacted with a society that was at some stages going through a moral decline. Ahmed Muhammad was tortured and was imprisoned to say that the Quran was created. Bukhari, Bukhari lived in the worst political, social and economic moment. He lived in Bukhara, away from Mecca and Medina. Traveled alone at the age of 18 and settled in Mecca, but still a politically de deteriorated and divided society. I'm not saying that people walked naked in the street. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that this, those people, in their own history, in their own context, they suffered. They struggled. But it was because of the household. Because they were carrying the memory of their father, the memory of their mother, 
And of course, the Quran and the Hadith and the Ikhlas and the blessing. But foremost, father, mother figure, they were carrying that with them wherever they went and wherever they traveled. And Malik will always talk about his mother. And Abu Hanifa will always talk about his mother. And students, including Abu Yusuf, will say we were never jealous of anyone other than jealous from the mother of Abu Hanifa, because whenever he sees her, he stops the circle and say, I'm going to be with my mother. So he will stop the circle and prevent us from learning. He didn't want to say we hated the mother of Abu Hanifa, but he said we were jealous from the mother of Abu Hanifa. So I wanted to focus on the household, and now I am focusing on the importance of the household, but now focusing the light of the camera on the sexual dimension in the character of the child, and how the parents can contribute to that. The first thing to say is that if a household is a decent Muslim believing household, there is an immediate sexual education to the child based on that. You tell me how? If a child grows up in a household where he sees his parents praying, isn't he seeing his parents covering their private parts and covering their aura in preparation to pray? So he initially becomes immediately at such an early age, he becomes aware that there are things in a moment of holy contexts, in a moment of salah that should not appear. Imagine a child encountering the hijab through his mother inside the household, not outside the household where there are strangers. No, inside the household where there are no strangers simply because his mother is going now to pray. Do you understand? And imagine then at the age of seven, he himself goes through that experience if he was a boy or if he was a girl. At the age of seven, she wears the hijab. We don't have to wait until she is 20. We don't have to wait until she is religious. We don't have to wait until she gets married. We don't. Why? Because since the age of seven, she has this friendly relationship with the hijab. Isn't this sexual education? Talking about sexual education, sexual education. What is sexual education? Condoms and stuff like I'm sorry to say this. No, sexual education is to know that I have parts in my body that should not show, not in public, because as you can tell now, all the underwears are becoming pu public. There is no underwear now. And, and again, sorry, the fashion now is that everyone is walking the street showing the brand of his underwear. What's this? Where is the, where is the under now? It's not under anymore. The child grows up in a household, in a household that respects private parts, that respects the concept of aura. So that's number one. That's, that, you, wallahi, brothers and sisters, this is how the blocks now, I can see the building growing, and I can see the blocks cementing each other, and pushing, and supporting, and the building stronger, stronger. I can see now the block of ibadah, helping the block of sexual desire. I can see the block of iman and aqidah, that Allah is watching me, helping the block of lowering the gaze. I can see now the building growing up, and I can see now the puzzle being completed, in the mind and heart of the children. Number one, the salah, and its role in educating the child sexually. Have you ever thought about salah like this? Well, this is a dimension to think about. Within now the household, salah plays another role, a fascinating role. Salah, in fact, 
organizes my encounter to see my mother and father in the bedroom. Number one, I have to seek permission and knock on the door and cannot just enter into the bedroom at any time. Or rather, and look at how Islam, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deals with the children. Before the age of puberty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that the child is walking and wandering and running, and it would be extremely difficult for the child to be restricted. So three times only is enough. You remember how Allah dealt with the alcoholics, how Allah dealt with them by saying, drink, but before the salah refrain. Again, you know what, what is this telling you? It's telling you that dealing with human beings is a very difficult endeavor. And that things has to be taken slowly and gradually. And someone who is below the age of puberty has to be trained. You see the training now? Three times, but after the age of puberty, he has to knock 24 hours. All the time, anytime. But the fascinating thing is that what is the nature of these three times? They are linked with the salah. They are linked with the salah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu liyasta'adhinkum alladheena malakat aymanukum until the rest of the surah. In surah al-Nur, and we will discuss surah al-Nur in that session. O oh, you who believe, let your legal slaves and slave girls and those among you who have not come to the age of puberty, ask your permission before they come to your presence on three occasions. The essence of these occasions are linked with the salah. Before Fajr, which is the morning prayer, and while you put off your clothes of the noonday rest, and after Isha, late night prayer. Now tell me, brothers and sisters, tell me, wouldn't it be a contradiction if you ask your child to knock and seek permission three times a day, before and after particular salah, if the mother or the father don't perform salah, what a contradiction. Or more realistically, would you even ask your children to seek permission during these three times if you don't even recognize them because you don't pray? That's why I said to you from the beginning that I am expecting the household and the parents to have reached a certain level for all these disciplining procedures to occur. And if the parents are not aware of the overarching framework, then these procedures will not exist anyway. Now, think about the bedroom. Think about why Allah does not want the child to go to the bedroom. Because he will see things that might not be... Now, if you understand the bedroom to be a physical location, I think you are missing the point. It is what happens in the bedroom. Is that right? Do you agree with me? I'm taking you now step by step. What if I respect the culture of what is happening in the bedroom and indeed ask permission or ask the children to ask permission to come and knock before they enter into the bedroom. But in real terms, I am transforming the culture of what happens in the bedroom elsewhere in the house. Do you want me to give you examples or make it more explicit? What if I am asking the child to seek permission so that they avoid seeing indecencies, for example, in the bedroom, but I allow them to see indecencies in the very magazine that is on the table? or in the very program that they are watching in TV. And nowadays, indecent programs don't have to be late at night. And you know what I mean. 
What is, if the indecency is in their mobile phones, through the images coming in that mobile? What is, if the indecency, I'm talking about household, I'm not talking about the outside of the household and posters and taking them to the beaches, etc. I'm talking about the household. So what I want you to think about here is that the verse is not just talking about the bedroom. The verse is talking about whatever could be happening in the bedroom and should not happen elsewhere in the household. So you miss the point or you misunderstand the verse when you ask your children to seek permission, but you put them in, on trial and test them when you actually in, make them encounter what they could have seen in the bedroom. Is this point understood? Okay, good. So, the bedroom could be a TV, the bedroom could be the internet, the bedroom could be a magazine, the bedroom could be the mother not wearing proper clothes while she's in the kitchen, or she's in the garden, or the father, sorry to say this, in the underwear in the living room watching TV and big belly and having popcorn. This could be the image. This is what I'm talking about. You want to have popcorn in your underwear? Go to the bedroom. Bedroom is where everything happens, but not the living room. No, no, I asked them to seek permission in the bedroom. Well, but you are transforming the bedroom into the living room. This is, this is what I mean. And then after puberty, the training continues, but this is now not training because it's a serious uh, procedure. You have to ask permission 24 hours because now you've reached a level where you understand. You have been praying since the age of seven. You have been into the habit of knocking on the door three times a day on a daily basis. Now it's easy for you. Wallahi, brothers and sisters, wallahi, I think that Islam is easy. The problem is that we practice it too late, and that's why we find it difficult. The other thing which happens in the household is where the children have reached an age that is close to puberty, is to separate between them in the beds. Some scholars said, if the bed is big, if the bed is large, then there is no problem, and the financial situation and the rooms are small, then they could sleep together, but each one have his own or her own independent blanket. But not the same bed with the same blanket. Because when people sleep, they become unconscious, they, anything could happen. And someone wakes up in the middle of the night to drink water and sees his sister in a... All this, brother, all this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with his rahmah, he's protecting you. He doesn't want you to, at that age, to encounter anything that will create problems in yourself. Doesn't the Quran, doesn't the hadith say that when you look at a strange woman, it is as if you have been hit with an arrow by the devil? And a lot of us feel that feeling. You feel that iman went down straight away. You don't want to go to the mosque, you don't want to do wudu, you don't want to read Quran straight away. The iman went because of that look. So when you are a child, Allah is caring about you. He says, knock the door. It might be a little bit difficult, I know. You want to see your mother, but knock. Believe me, it's good for you. Yes, you will be separated from your beloved brother, but only temporary or only quite a distance between you and only a blanket far away or only that next bed far away only to protect you. So that when you go to the society in the summer, you will not suffer. So these procedures are not to tighten you. They are in fact to emancipate and liberate you.
سو so, التفريق في المضاجع in the at the age, there are two narrations one suggests at the age of seven this is riwayat al-hakim and it is sahih ala sharti muslim and al-dhahabi said that this is a sound hadith idha balagha awladukum sab'a sinin fafarriqu bayna furashihim that when your children reach the age of seven then separate between them it seems that the age of seven is is very significant both in salah and in sleeping and here we're not talking about brother and sister we're talking about two sisters we are talking about two brothers We are talking about, obviously, a brother and a sister. There is another hadith that is narrated by Abu Dawood, sound sanad as well, where it says, at the age of 10. But again, brothers and sisters, it's not, this is the easiest thing, to buy two sleeping bags and that's it. This is not the, the point. The point is that this should be in coherence with an entire culture that is taking place at the house. So the bedroom is not transformed to the living room. I'm separating between them, but at the same time, I'm asking the girl not to wear indecent clothes in front of her father and brother, even if not at the bedroom or in bed. So again, don't take the bed as just the bedroom. Take the culture of what is expected that happens in the bed elsewhere, inside the household. Another procedure, which is again quite simple, if the child is being trained to do it, is for the child to sleep, to get into the habit of sleeping at his or her right side. And I'm talking about children that have reached the age of... I'm not talking about someone who's breastfeeding, you know, brother, baby, come sit on the right hand. No, I'm talking about someone who are you are training. You are anticipating within a couple of years, he or she will reach the age of puberty. So sleep on the right part. Now, don't worry what happens after he goes or she goes to sleep, whether on the stomach or the back or jumps from the window or sleepwalking. Just at the beginning, when he or she are sleeping, uh, to sleep at the... so that he or she feels that when they go to bed, it's the right side. And explain it. Say, this is what Rasulullah is doing. And there are medical reports that say the position of the stomach, this is more comfortable, etc., etc. So explain. Explain to, to, to them why Rasulullah said that. And you are aware of the hadith that for, for boys, that is, rather than girls, where whoever sleeps on his stomach, this is how the devil sleeps, if ever the devil sleeps. And nothing is wrong probably at a later stage. There is a problem, of course, if the parents themselves don't do that. But nothing is wrong with teaching the children athkar and nawm, the, the dua of sleeping before going to sleep. Or just bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And there are certain duas or some verses from the Quran that Rasulullah used to read before going to sleep. So that the child is, looks at everything linking him or her to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or to the dua. And don't think that it's, the duas are difficult. They are not difficult. If they are repeated, I'm talking about my daughter. Three years old, she was knowing the athkar and naw, dua and naw. In fact, I don't know the, some of the dua of, of, or sometimes forget, she reminds me. She, she actually, I tell her, she, and because they are like parrots, they, they have a, an incredible ability to absorb. And in the same way that they can memorize good things, they can easily memorize bad things. So if you insult one day or swear at your wife, they might internalize it and after a month do it for you. It's here in the memory, but coming at the right, at the right moment. 
Okay, so this is what is happening in the household. What is happening in the household that I am seeking permission? What's happening in the household first is that I am aware that there are private parts that should not show and privacy and that during salah these things should be covered. Number one. Number two, I am aware that I should be asking for permission and knocking on the doors in times that are linked with salah. Number three, I sleep in the same bedroom perhaps with my sister or with my brother, but in a different bed or a different blanket. And I try when I sleep to sleep on my right side and say, if possible, if I could, the athkar or the duas or the prayers of sleeping. This is the household. That's it. That's your mission. Of course, the boy or the girl is seeing you pray, talk, talk nicely to your wife, etc. I'm not going to talk about, I'm just talking about these procedures in relation to the sexual. Now he goes to the outside and watches a big poster of someone who's wearing, I don't know what, it's unfortunate, I know that. But think about a child that have been trained in the household to respect privacy. Doesn't it then become easy for him or her when he or she sees an image of indecency to lower the gaze? I know that this does not happen always and certainly does not happen in our cases we are, where we, not a lot of us are brought up in a religious way. But certainly there is a difference between a child who have grown up inside a household that taught him all these things and between a child who have not. Would you agree with me? But even then, even then, when he or she looks, what is your role? The children, the, the teenagers at the time of Rasulullah used to look at girls? Yes. Out of admiration? Yes. This hadith is narrated in many narrations. And the hero of that hadith is actually the brother of Abdullah ibn Abbas, who is called Al-Fadl ibn Abbas. Al-Fadl is the brother of Abdullah ibn Abbas, and he is related to Rasulullah When you hear the word Abbas, it's the uncle of Rasulullah But not only that, when you hear the word Abbas, it's the relative of Rasulullah But not only that, Anyone who is related to Rasulullah anyone who is a Hashemite, was good looking, was handsome. So Al-Fadl was handsome. Abdullah ibn Abbas was handsome. Rasulullah you know it, you said it, you thought about it. So Al-Fadl ibn Abbas is a young boy, and this hadith is narrated by Abdullah ibn Abbas, his brother. And look when the brother narrates about his brother, that my brother is naughty. Abdullah ibn Abbas said, كان الفضل رديف النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم. الفضل, the hadith is narrated in many ways, but just let me tell you the essence of the hadith. Al-Fadl ibn Abbas was with Rasulullah at the back of the camel or the mule. Can, can you imagine Rasulullah taking many children at the back of... Have you thought as a parent, as a father, to take your child for a walk or in your car? just to discuss things with him? Or when you just go home, you just want the child to go to bed because you want to have rest from work. By the way, the camel, the mule, could be, could be the car, could be walking, could be cycling. This action of taking children behind you, 
or actually holding hands with your child and going to the beach and talking to him in the middle of the night, for example, and talking to him about lowering the gaze and stuff. What's wrong with that? Rather than you and him watching TV in the living room. So, Al-Fadl, Abdullah bin Abbas says, Al-Fadl was behind Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, sitting with him on the camel or the mule. And a girl came. And a girl came. Now the girl was showing her face. And the girl came to ask a question to Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam about Hajj. That, if you want the question, are you interested? Well, basically, my father is quite old. Can I do Hajj on behalf of him? That's the question. Don't tell me what's the answer, because now we'll go into fiqh. The, but while she's asking the question, she's noticing that there is a, a beautiful boy sitting at the back of Ar Rasul Sallallahu So, and you know some sisters, Ya Rasulullah, and she's talking to Ar Rasul. Subhanallah, do you have, can you afford to look elsewhere? But subhanallah, they, I don't think that they were aware of the luxury and the beauty and the honor of talking to Rasulullah sallam. They are, they, they are not aware that one day youngsters like us or like you will be in Bakbuk College fantasizing about them. So she's looking at, and which shows to me, and sorry to say it so bluntly, the strength of sexual desire. So even when the Prophet sallam is there, you look at boys. And we, oh boys, even when Rasulullah are sitting in front of you, you look at girls. Because they were actually mutually looking at each other. But of course, as a girl, she was looking and looking at the other side and probably, I don't know, playing with her hair or something and looking shy, etc. But the boy was looking straight into the eyes. <laughs> and subhanallah, Rasulullah was not busy asking about such a simple question to do with Hajj. But he was looking around, keeping an eye on Al-Fadl ibn Abbas, and always trying to turn his face the other way. I don't know, Al-Fadl might be, have been looking at camels, or from a girl to camel. So he's turning, and, and the hadith, in the various narrations, say that, he turned his face once, and he started looking again. And he's turned his face twice and started looking again and turned it three times and Rasulullah turned it again and Al-Fadl said I continued to look despite this turning and Rasulullah was fed up and he left me but he did not leave him in silence he said to him Ibn Akhi the son of my brother and when Rasulullah advises, he has to give you these beautiful words. Oh, my beloved. Oh, young boy. Ibn Akhi. I love you. In fact, he, in one hadith with Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, he says, Wallahi ya Sa'd inni uhibbuk. Wallahi Sa'd, I love you. Can you say to someone today, I love you, a brother? He will look at you like this and say, keep away from me. The word love has been so contaminated. Uh, I like you. I, I, what? I fancy you? No, I, I don't think you. I like you. Okay, that's enough. Okay, brother, I like you too. Thank you very much. Just send me a checkbook or something. But here, wallahi ya, wallahi, by Allah ya Sa'd, I love you. Is this the point ya Rasulullah? No, I want to give you an advice. But first of all, building the bridge. So, Ibn Akhi, he's talking to Al-Fadl now. Ibn Akhi, 
إن هذا يوم look look at how now he how he deals with the situation إن هذا يوم من غض فيه بصرة وحفظ فرجه ولسانه غفر له Oh my boy Oh the son of my brother This is a day This day by the way was a day of Hajj Rasulullah hence the question relation to Hajj Rasulullah was in fact close to the Kaaba and Subhanallah it shows what do you know what it shows other than that it shows not that even with the presence of the Prophet in Hajj, you will continue to look at girls. SubhanAllah, what about if you are in Leicester Square? So, here, he says to him, Rasulullah this is a day. This is a special day. Whoever lowers his gaze and whoever protects his private part and his tongue, which has nothing to do with girls, but probably yes, why not in the future, uh, shall we meet at five o'clock? The tongue now begins to Allah will forgive him. Actually, what is fascinating in this hadith is that Rasulullah wasn't harsh on the boy. Number one, because this is a process of training. Number two, he didn't leave him because uh, he's underage or anything like this. He had to say a few words. Number three, he spoke about private parts. While the boy was just looking, perhaps out of admiration. Nothing to do with the private part. But what Rasulullah was doing, training him to look seriously at looking at girls. To look seriously meaning to the serious consequences that will be based on looking at girls. Because there is a link between looking and the private parts. Isn't this sexual education? Isn't this sex education that they are talking about? Here they educate you. Yes, uh, do sleep with the girl, but don't get her pregnant or underage pregnancy. No, sex education here is not to fall in sex. But it's not just about don't fall in sex. No. غفر له Linking you with Allah. And look, brothers and sisters, when Rasulullah says, Rasulullah did not say, if you look at her next time, the police will arrest you out of sexual abuse or harassment. No. Linking the child with Allah. And he knows, Rasulullah, that mentioning the word of Allah will have an impact on the child. Because there is this ongoing process that the household was undertaking before this saying was said to him. So he said it in that context. That you knock the door. That you respect your private part during salah. So just do it outside the house, even if the girl was beautiful. A final item. I said the procedures or the advices that are to be taken inside the household. And I talked about the importance of lowering the gaze and the serious consequences based on not doing that outside the household. Let me just now link the two together with a general advice, a third procedure, that the household, i.e. the parents, could undertake as well, that is related to both the what happens inside the household and what happens outside. And that is very simple procedure, but again presumes that the parents themselves are educated about that procedure. And this procedure is about explaining to the child Surah An-Nur, the chapter of An-Nur. And I would urge mothers, fathers, but particularly mothers, because in fact, there is a saying of Umar ibn al-Khattab, 
and this is a saying, this is not a hadith, take it or leave it, where he says, teach your girls to sew and to memorize Surah An-Nur. Because if you look at Surah An-Nur, it's all about social ethics, social manners, particularly in relation to the sexual dimension. And to understand why, you have to understand the context of that chapter and why it was revealed. And I would take this chapter to be one element contributing to the sex education of the prophetic society. When a, an entire chapter is concerned with the relationship between men and women, and Rasulullah is reading these chapters to the community that has children inside it, what more of education do you want? Don't think that Islam hid things from children. Don't think that Islam is waiting for the child to grow up, to understand through experience. No. Through training, through Quran, through responsible and educated parents, he or she will be introduced to these things as early as possible, but not to get early pregnancy. No. But as early as possible to become responsible, decent citizens in their respective community and society. Surah An-Nur was a chapter that was revealed for a rumor that Aisha radiallahu anha committed adultery. And the rumor is serious because this is the wife of Rasul sallallahu And again, imagine brothers and sisters, just imagine. Aisha radiallahu anha was a young girl at that time. And Rasul sallallahu was quite old at that time. And imagine how the munafiqeen would find it a very easy target to accuse a girl in her honor. Have you thought about it like this? Think about the age difference between the two. Think about the boys that were in the community and in the society, including Safwan ibn al-Mu'attal, whom they accused of doing that sin with her. And the rumor spread itself in the community, so much so that companions fell into the trap and participated in talking ill of Aisha radiallahu anha. And Aisha was devastated during that period, so much so that she asked for the first time to leave the house of Rasulullah and go and stay with her parents, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq and her mother. It was a very serious situation. It was a very dark situation that only wanted and demanded the nur of Allah to come and shed light everywhere. Hence, it was called Surah An-Nur. What was that nur? It was the Quran with all its social advices that will bring light into the darkness. In Surah An-Nur, the immediate verse that came you might think was a bit harsh. The women and the man guilty of illegal sexual intercourse flog each of them with a hundred stripes. This, when, you, when, the, when the chapter begins with that, it's a very, you might think this is a very, a very harsh beginning. You, the, the beginning might have been don't attack the honor of girls, don't abuse the innocent, etc., etc. 
But why did it begin with that? It began with that because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to put the ceiling first and say, this is your limit. If you exceed the limit, you will be punished. But before you, you are forced to go to that limit, I'm going to protect you from the outset. And therefore, the entire chapter are talking about protective measures. Protective measures that will never lead you to commit adultery. What are these protective measures? First of all, the entire chapter, and that's why I'm saying children should be taught this chapter. It's about the protective measures. It talks about seeking permission before you go to the bedroom. What's this has to do with fornication and adultery? Well, training. Number two, it's talking about getting your youngsters married as early as possible. And marry those among you who are single and the salihun, the pious of your slaves and maid servants. If they are poor, Allah is all sufficient for his creatures. So at the beginning, seek permission. Then if you can afford when you reach the age of puberty to get married, get married. And then the, there are verses that talks about lowering the gaze. Say to the believing men that they should lower their gaze and guard their private parts. That is purer for them. Surely Allah is aware of what they do. And say to the believing women that they should lower their gaze and guard their private parts. This is a third procedure. A fourth procedure you will notice in the surah, there is hijab, talking about hijab and the importance of wearing hijab. The fifth or sixth procedure is not to speak ill of anyone's honor based on the lack of evidence. And you know, Sometimes I feel we do that. Now there is a culture here in this country of following celebrity scandals. Hello magazine is nothing but following the actor and the actresses when they go to the beach. Scandals, intruding their privacy. The society here don't speak to strangers. They are, we are told that this is a cold society, but they are hungry for scandals. They are hungry for royal news. They are hungry to intrude any private house on a level of a photo or gossip in the sun. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prevented all that culture based on that incident of Aisha radiallahu anha. If you don't know what has happened or you have no evidence, then excuse me to say it, shut your mouth. Sometimes you see sisters talking about boys. And sometimes you see brothers talking about girls. This is all targeted and addressed inside this chapter. Verily, those who like that the crime of illegal sexual intercourse should be propagated among those who believe they will have a painful torment in this world and in the hereafter. Even in this world. And Allah knows, and you know not. Allah knows the consequences of you talking, and gossiping, and chatting, in messengers, in the internet, sending photos, looking at images, talking among yourselves, and gossiping about things that can lead to talk about honors of people. All this is haram. Verily those who accuse chaste women, and I would say chaste men as well, who never even think of anything, touching their chastity 
and our good believers, talking about Aisha and any decent women, are cursed in this life and in the hereafter, and for them will be a great torment. This is another procedure. So, when you are asked to lower your gaze and wear the hijab, and do not speak ill of anyone unless you produce four evidences, otherwise you will be lashed 80 times. Are you serious? Yes. Do you know, and brothers and sisters, I want to dramatize this a little bit. Do you know that Umar ibn al-Khattab, when he was Khalifa al-Mu'mineen, he saw a zina crime taking place? He saw it, and he heard it. And he went back and said to Ali ibn Abi Talib, I'm going to lash them. This girl and this boy. He saw the boy. He saw the girl. He heard them. Subhanallah, where were they? In the street or in the market? He saw them. Ali ibn Abi Talib said, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, you can't do that. And wallahi, if you utter the name of the girl, you will be lashed 80 times. You know why? Because he needs three witnesses. Him, yes I know, I respect you, O Umar, but you are one. As a number, you are one. Yes, but I am Umar. I am the one that Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, if there was to be a messenger after me, it's Umar. I am the one who anticipated many things that then the Quran came to emphasize. Yes, but you are only one. We need four. And he did not utter the name of the girl, and the girl was left, and no one knew her till that day. And Umar might have seen her many times in the market. And she will say, Assalamu alaykum, ya amir al-mu'mineen. And he cannot touch her. But say, wa alaykum assalam, wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the just community? A just community does not mean necessarily a, a totally pure community. No, there is, there is adultery taking, there is fornication taking, there is a girl watching a boy and a boy watching a girl and Rasulullah shaking the hand, and there is in fact a girl sleeping at that moment with a boy in that community witnessed by Umar al-Khattab. But no one in either case was lashed. So when you take the chapter and read the first verse, Az-Zaniyatu Az-Zani, you will see then how Difficult it is to establish evidence with lowering the gaze, with seeking permission, with wearing the hijab, with bringing four witnesses. That means that this person who committed adultery is committing it so vulgarly in front of four people that he doesn't mind anymore. This person has been given the permission to get married and the society has been encouraged to get him married, yet he is challenging the feelings and the norms and the values of this society and going in front of everyone and committing adultery and fornication. Doesn't he or she then deserve 100 lashes? Think about that. Think about all that taught to a child. Wouldn't he then take seriously adultery and fornication? Wouldn't he then take seriously when he goes to school and he watches his other boys looking at pornographic magazines, he will not participate in that? Or when he is talking to his friend about going out in the night to meet this girl or to dance with that girl, he will not even listen to the gossip that is taking place? Why? Because he has been brought up in a household that taught him whence he was seven or six, Surah An-Nur. 
This is fascinating. This is amazing. This is the children that we are talking about. Not children that knows everything about girls and they boost and they are proud that they know everything about girls through the internet or through DVDs or now recently Playstations. No. He is aware of sexual desires. He's aware of sex. He's aware of all these things. But he is aware that these are desires. They have to be disciplined. They have to be properly challenged, not suppressed. And asking that Allah one day will get him married to a decent girl that will fulfill all these things that are natural and breed him children that are his concern most. The children of the, and the offspring. أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه إنه الغفور الرحيم.